Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and infantile adolescent pathetic specimen, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and mopey pigeon feeder, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about The Sound of Her Wings, Issue 8 from Sandman, Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes. The Sound of Her Wings was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. Covers by Dave McKean. You are literally the stupidest, most self-centered, appallingest excuse for an anthropomorphic personification on this or any other plane. Time to wake up. Elisa, so here we are. I can't believe we've finished Preludes and Nocturnes. We've got issue eight, The Sound of Her Wings. Um, And so I just wanted to kind of get a general feel from you. What did you think about this issue? I felt that this issue was kind of a reset in the sense Mm -hmm. that it offers a new reader a perfect jumping off place. Mm -hmm. You could actually just begin the series here. And I am pretty sure a lot of people did back in the day. Yeah, I really like the sound of our wings. It does feel like a a coda. You know, we finished our story, we finished our narrative, and now it it is sort of this moment where we're kind of taking a breath, taking a look at everything that has happened. You know, we even rehash the whole thing, the whole story from beginning to end, you know, through a dream explaining it to death. Um, And it caps off what Sandman went through and leaves this space for more adventures as he kind of like finds his way, you know, into new purpose. So I, I really like that. Yeah. All right, let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's as you were saying, it's also a very different tone, and we've gone from the dark horror to something that is much more reflective and poetic. Even yeah. I like it. All right, let's go to the summary. The sound of her wings. A mopey dream feeds breadcrumbs to the pigeons at New York's Washington Square Park, the site of 60s folk gatherings and protests, and also the location of an old potter's field. While Franklin, a human golden retriever, plays soccer in the background, we meet Dream's sister, a slender, bone-white goth girl who apparently goes to the same hairdresser as her brother. We still don't know her name as she attempts to cheer him up. How does she find him? In pre-cell phone days, it was generally harder to find people without making the rounds of their usual haunts, so perhaps Dream can often be found at Washington Square Park. When that doesn't work, the cheering him up, that is, she asks him what's wrong. Dream reveals that having achieved his objectives from the previous storyline, he doesn't know why he feels deflated. His sister bips him on the head with the stale bread. By the way, don't feed pigeons bread. It's actually not good for them. Dresses him down for not checking in with her and then invites him to come along with her as she makes her rounds. At this point, it becomes clear who Dream's sister really is as she takes a comedian just beginning to find her voice, a baby, and an old Jewish man. As Dream watches his sister perform her duties with compassion and care, his sense of purpose is restored, and the issue ends when Franklin, the human golden retriever, catches his very last soccer ball. As death escorts Franklin to the sunless lands, Dream feeds Dream grain to the pigeons, which is, in all probability, a whole other story waiting to be told. All right. So, um, yeah, this is a really um, kind of interesting, fun issue 
There's, um, I, I don't know that there's necessarily as much of a, an episodic narrative in here so much as it is kind of just like a looking back at what has happened and figuring out where we're going. But there's a lot of stuff I like in here. You know, I like dream kind of sitting down and having a moment of reflection and sort of figuring out um, who he is and what it is that he's going to do. And he's been through this whole traumatic experience, you know, and, and part of that means that when you go through stuff like that, it changes who you are and his ability to kind of reconnect with himself. He says, you reminded me of something that I had forgotten. Thank you. You know, um, which is really kind of a nice sentiment to have after he's kind of ruminating over all of this stuff, you know, and getting into his broody pants. You know, which is really kind of fun. Uh, Dream's got his brood pants on. Um, so, so tell me some of the responses that you had to this issue. Well, I felt that there was a lot of really interesting world building. As mm -hmm. as you say, this is not a, a sort of propulsive plot issue. It's it's yeah. more, um, you know, I, I there's um, there is a writer, and I'm trying to remember who it is. Maybe Donald Mass, who's actually an agent, who talks about mm -hmm. um, scenes, summaries, and postcards. And postcards mm -hmm. are moments where you go deeper and you reflect, and you characters through the character you reflect inward and understand mm -hmm. their situation more deeply. It's very literary, and this yeah. is a postcard, you know, mm -hmm. moment in in a lot of ways. But there's also some really good world building. Um, Going back to that first issue, we learned that Roderick Burgess was trying to capture death, and we knew that she was one of the endless. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think we knew that she was a she. Yeah. Uh, we also learned there were three others, Destiny, Desire, and Dream, and of course, now mm -hmm. we know that Dream is the Sandman. But this is the issue where we learn that the Endless are siblings and as befits anthropomorphic personifications of abstract concepts, they really act like siblings. They are mm -hmm. truly anthropomorphic. At this point, you know, we only know about death, dream, destiny, and desire who are all mentioned here. We'll later learn that mm -hmm. there are or were seven. But we mm -hmm. already learn that dream and death are closer to each other than either is to desire. Uh, I think uh, death lets slip. Uh, what is it? She says, "You're as bad as 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 desire, or worse." <laughs> <laughs> it's fun seeing that relationship kind of play out too. Is that she's you know he's going through this whole broody thing, and she lets him do it, and then she unloads on him, you know. <laughs> and she said, "I was worried silly about you, like you know." And then there's also this really nice turn between them when he says, "You know, they were after you." Yeah. And she says, I know. And she just moves on, you know, through it. And then he's like, what would have happened? The catastrophe that would have happened. And she doesn't sit on it. She doesn't spend time with that. What might have been, might have been, but it wasn't. And she just kind of moves through it. And I really like that about their relationship. You know, it's it's a nice relationship between the two of them, and especially while she's working. Because we're getting all of this while she's working, while she's going through, you know, her motions, um, you know, with all of these people that she escorts over. 
this is just an aside, but in reality, wouldn't they both be working nonstop? I mean, it's not well, like yeah. somebody is constantly dying or dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very true. Yeah. I mean, how, what do they do when they have a – anyway, I guess that's why he put things in uh, – some of his power in the objects just to have a little day off. But – I guess so. Yeah, that's, you know, that's your Sunday, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about that, too. I was like, well, you know, she's she's bopping from place to place. But like, she, people are dying everywhere. And like, if this is if she was constantly escorting every soul over, um, there, there would be no time for it. time would have to not exist. You know, which may be part of it. Maybe they time doesn't exist for them in the same way. I mean, clearly doesn't exist for them in the same way. So maybe there's a, a concept, you know, thing there. But the, the, the long and the short of it is that here we have, you know, death and the sound of her wings, you know, which is this thing that we keep coming back to. We keep touching that stone throughout the run of this and, and talk about sound a lot um, and, uh, and, and Sandman. And, and I always find that interesting because here we have, you know, it was essentially a visual medium, you know. Um, and I remember in 24 hours, it was listen, 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 you know. Um, and here it is, I hear the sound of her wings. I hear the sound of, you know, of, of the breath or the wind or whatever. He was always talking about sound. And I really like that we bring that sense into, um, into a medium that usually, that doesn't necessarily deal with that as much because we've got all these incredible visuals. And so we spend all the time in this visual space and not really so much in the sound space. Um, but in, in these, he keeps bringing us back to that kind of like an anchor. And there's such wonderful symbolism about wings mm-hmm. and, you know, death angel, although mm-hmm. she's not an angel in this. Yeah. I also was thinking that, you know, she is, you know, on the one hand, she's this, you know, ginchy goth anti-dream girl, mm-hmm. anti-dream yeah. in the sense that she is very much a foil for, for dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I have heard her described by some, sorry, I just hit the mic. I, because I, That's I talk. Okay. Just, just. Yes. I, I talk with my hands, guys. This is really, di- I need to just sort of pin my hands down. I'm trying to say manic pixie dream girl, and this requires two hands for some reason. It does require, it requires that. I know, I've, I've long since, because I've been podcasting for so long, um, tried to kill that instinct, but I still do it, and I bump into my microphone all the time. But it's it's cool, it's cool. So go ahead, let's, let's speaking, talk a little bit about this. Yes, yeah, speaking of manic, but, yes, you know, so... Death, like Harley Quinn, um, mm-hmm. you know, who was also created in the 90s, uh, she was really an instant hit with, you know, those who wanted to date her, those who wanted to emulate her. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was just looking up the term manic pixie dream girl, as one does. Mm-hmm. And yes. it was, I guess, invented in 2005 uh, by the film critic Nathan R- Rabin. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often used for those who are not familiar with the term to describe someone who's quirky, a girl usually, or a young mm-hmm. woman, quirky and vivacious female who, and here is a quote, who exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. And that was mm-hmm. Rabin's quote. But while death is quirky and vivacious, uh, and I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. seen a vivacious goth before, um, <laughs> she's she's not a romantic interest. She's yes. a sister. And I think that mm-hmm. is that, first of all, it's different because instead of 
someone who is going to transform or be won over. She is someone who has in some way grown her personality in relationship to him. In family dynamics, Mm -hmm. we become Mm -hmm. who we are partially because of our natural temperaments, but also if we're raised with siblings or we're raised with, Mm -hmm. um, I guess mainly with siblings, there's some way that people begin to assume roles. They take on these roles Mm -hmm. and then become very identified with them. And, you know, so in that sense, I, I think it's, it's not just like that simplistic manic pixie dream girl romantic ideal, but also we can see here that, Death, uh, well, well, first of all, dream isn't just brooding. We we see a mm-hmm. different side of him come out here, a side that is sort of more sensitive and and mm-hmm. um and able to appreciate his sister. And death has already in this very first appearance, we see that she is capable of getting angry, but she's capable of going still and quiet. These are not mm-hmm. one note characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um I can see where death maybe shares some DNA with the manic pixie dream girl and how somebody at a glance might see her that way. Um, there are a few reasons why I would absolutely argue along with you that this is not the case. Um, one of them is, yes, it's not a romantic relationship. She does not just exist to fuck him and collect his tears in a, you know, in a jar and whatever, you know, <laughs> um, like, and that's the thing, like the manic pixie dream girl is somebody who exists in this ethereal space and whose only purpose narratively is to, um, to like teach a lesson about life and then run off and live an unsustainable existence. Like the existence of the manic pixie dream girl, her day to day life is not even remotely related to anything. It's not anchored in any kind of reality. She just simply exists to hold a spotlight and reflect it on our male protagonist. And that's usually how the manic pixie dream girl is, is, um, is, is expressed. Um, I do not think that death is this because actually what we're doing is we're having dream follow her through her life which is absolutely anchored in reality because she's fucking death. You know, she is dealing with death. She is transferring people from one realm to another. We see her connecting with other, with all these people um, in a way that is incredibly empathic and kind. She has a job to do. And she's like, hey, I'm going to go do my thing. You can come with me if you want, but you don't have to. You know, she's telling, she's setting him down and saying, no, this is, you know, this is stupid. This is, you're behaving like an asshole. You know, Um, and so all of those things are not Manic Pixie Dream Girl qualities uh, because the Manic Pixie Dream Girl only exists from the the way that the male looks. She only exists through the male perspective, whereas I think death is very, very much her own character. And even if she never showed up in any other issue aside from this one, which in my reality is is the exist is what happened, you know, (laughs) like that's my experience of it because I haven't read anymore, you know. But even if she never showed up anymore, she still, I don't think, would would qualify as a manic pixie dream girl. Um, and uh, and so, like, I I think that death is awesome and interesting, and um, and I like her as a a sibling character, you know, as somebody who is. Um, 
can kind of reflect some of Dream's experience for us, can give us a broader world in which Dream exists, gives us a family. Like we've seen Dream. Dream is always alone. And this is kind of the the realm of the superhero, though, as, as in the episode that I had, uh, this bonus episode with Joshua Unruh, we have determined that Sandman is not a superhero and that's okay. But one of the things about the superhero or about anybody who is, you know, kind of extraordinary in a world full of ordinary is that they are always alone. They are never connected, right? Because you're always going to be separate if you have that much more power than the people around you. Um, And the thing with Dream is that he was alone. He's been alone through the whole thing, no matter who he's been with, he's always been alone. This is the first time that he's not alone. And that's one of the things that I really like about seeing his family, seeing this kind of broader world come into being is that he doesn't have to be alone. I like that. Yes. And visually, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not twins, but they Mm -hmm. are, their look and their aesthetic is so similar that we can yeah. really see that these are not just siblings, but sibling close friends. Yeah, yeah, that they have a similar way in which, and we've also seen that that dream can appear differently to different people. You know, that he looks different based on what they expect. But it seems to me like the the dream that we see is the real one, and the death that we see is the real one, and she does reflect him. You know, she is kind of a part of him. They are part of the same kind of source. They come from the same source, you know, um, and I really, really like that. Um, one of the things, too, that I liked, and it was it was kind of a simple point that sort of touched on in this, but I think like a really interesting idea is I am far more terrible than you sister right everybody dreads death everybody's so afraid of death why do they fear the sunless lands you know I am far more terrible than you um and yet you know nobody fears the dreams but they do fear death and so I thought that was kind of like an interesting observation for him to have as he's walking through all of this with her and when people see her They recognize her when these people who are dying see her. They're like, oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. And then they understand. And I always found that really interesting, too. Like on some level, they knew. They know her, you know? Yeah. And I I mean, I think about different fictional and mythological or legend, legends I've heard about death. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea that it's not just after you die, but as you're dying in that moment of passing that you recognize death. And I, mm-hmm. I think that that falls in there. I I view this this dream being more terrible than death in a, an interesting way. This is one of those mm-hmm. moments for me where I think, oh, I remember how I read that and how I absorbed it in the 90s when I was in my yeah. 20s. And I know mm. how it feels a little different to me now. Mm-hmm. I um, this is this is not in my notes, but I have this theory that I call death virginity. And oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so what what it is is death virginity to me is the first time that you lose someone who is not necessarily. It could be just someone really close to you. Um, mm-hmm. like a, a, a beloved grandparent, but mm-hmm. or or even a beloved pet, and you're aware that mm-hmm. death can touch you. But there is mm-hmm. a, a a 
deeper sense of it, I think, that happens the first time you lose someone who could he's one of yours, you know, who's who's in right. your sociological cohort, who's your age, mm-hmm. who wasn't someone you were expecting to die. And, you know, mm-hmm. some people that happens quite young, some people it happens when you're mm-hmm. older. And I had already um, lost a friend who is my age uh, when I read mm-hmm. this. But I... I still think that I I hadn't experienced as much death. And so I thought of that as both a cool line, like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. dream is more terrible than death. Sort of a cool yeah. way of twisting the expected, mm-hmm. inverting it, but also a, a glimpse into the personalities of each of the siblings. Mm-hmm. Now I am viewing it a, a little differently. I'm thinking that, you know, Neil is speaking again on some of the themes that Shakespeare touches on. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. that famous part of Hamlet's soliloquy where he says, um, to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to skip over because I feel a little self-conscious now, like I'm not the greatest <laughs> actor in the world, but to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Mm-hmm. I there's the rub for in that sleep of death, what dreams may, may come. And this is the opposite, the idea that the horrible thing is not, the terrifying thing is not the dreams that come after we die, mm-hmm. but the dreams that come when we're still alive. And in that sense, mm-hmm. this is the idea that there is something more terrible than death because death is either an ending or such a complete transformation that it's truly a a new beginning. And as Mm -hmm. I personally am grappling with um, a loved one with dementia, I am thinking how we spend so much time fearing death, but this feels, um, this feels like a more undoing of the self, which is is more frightening. And, and then I began to think about how dream is also, we will learn, I mean, this is me cheating mm-hmm. by moving ahead thematically, but we will <laughs> learn that dream is close to another of his siblings. The siblings he's closest to, I would say, are death mm-hmm. and delirium. And we'll meet her mm-hmm. later. But I, I think mm-hmm. this is the first time that it kind of clicked for me that the concepts that you could say Mm -hmm. are more closely linked, like dream and delirium, are also the siblings that are closer. And then dream and despair, uh, not dream and despair, sorry, desire and despair, we're going to learn Mm -hmm. that they have also a close relationship, although Mm -hmm. uh, death and, and dream don't get along so well with desire. Oh, yeah, from I've seen little hints about that. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that uh, shakes out. Um, Yeah, I think that um, first of all, I love this idea of the death virginity, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Um, But this, this idea that dreams are so much worse you know, like the the dreams. I mean, how many times have you woken up in the middle of the night with a nightmare? And the thing is, is that that kind of fear, that anxiety, that experience of horror that you have when you have one of those terrible dreams, the call is coming from inside the house, right? Oh, I mean, beautifully said. You are generating that that terror comes from something that is within you. 
that is not external to you, that is not separate, that is not out there. It is something that is within you that is creating that suffering. Um, and, and what, you know, that may be, um, you know, who the hell knows, but that darkness is there because it's showing up in your dreams. And, you know, people experience that in all sorts of different ways, you know, um, whereas death really is about a transformation, you know, um, and it is about moving from, you know, one experience of existence into another and who knows what that other experience is. Um, but even if it is nothing, you know, which I think is what most of us fear, the idea that, that I, me will just not exist someday. And that can't be, you know, um, the idea of the world going on without you is just terrifying, but it would be just nothing. And I mean, you know, how bad is that? Oh, oh, this is what you said just made me think. Um, so Nabokov, I think it was his memoir, Speak Memory, said that he always was very disturbed as a young child by looking at pictures of his family from before he was born. And he, I remember the line, the cradle rocks above over an abyss or above an abyss because mm -hmm. it's the idea that that period before you were born sort of rhymes with the period after you after you die right. i i also wanted to say that you know one of the things that is really interesting about the story and kids don't try this at home is there's almost there really isn't any actually any external conflict this is, mm -hmm. yeah, this is, uh, I mean, it's, it's literary in that, you know, it's just a character trying to regain a sense of purpose and ends with an epiphany, which is mm -hmm. incredibly hard to pull off. Um, I think one of the ways that it works is that we all have this enduring interest in what, what would a day in, in the life of death really look like. And Neil mm -hmm. will come back to that um, later mm -hmm. in a, a, a death special, which is also maybe someday Ooh. we'll do like a little coda thing and do the, you know, the death uh, special. Oh, I'm completely, completely into it. And I mean, the thing is, in order for a narrative to work, I mean, it doesn't always have to be an external conflict. An internal conflict can also work. And we do see dreams sort of struggling with, um, he, you know, he wants to find uh, something that is eluding him, which is, I think, a sense of purpose. I think that he, you know, he came out of this, you know, captivity and he had purpose. He had a quest. He had something he was supposed to do. And he did all of those things, you know. And then once he did it, he just felt kind of blah. And he also talks a little bit about how, you know, getting his vengeance was just not fulfilling either, you know, um, because the vengeance is one of the things that was not about the quest. The quest was to get yeah. the sand and the ruby and the mask and all of that. Um, but the vengeance was just purely, you know, purely for fun. It was it was extracurricular, you know, um, but it also was not was not really fulfilling for him and and kind of going through. And especially, you know, when I think about that, that scene with Nada and Hal, you know, I have not forgiven you yet. You know, she is stuck in hell, you know, suffering and he has not forgiven her. So there is a sense of vengeance within Dream, but also we've seen him be incredibly kind and incredibly empathetic to people and caring and using his power to ease suffering. You know, he is beginning to find purpose and he is struggling, I think, with that 
transitional space in which you've come through one experience, you are changed because that experience, and then you don't know who you are now or what you're going to do. And spending all this time with death has kind of given him that. So while it's not a really strong sense of conflict in that we have, you know, two goals that are, you know, um, that are mutually exclusive, kind of creating that that tension that, that generates that kind of narrative juice, you know, um, I think that there is an internal conflict for, um, for Dream and that he is in search of something that he cannot reach. He is, he's going, he wants something that he cannot figure out. And then she is the, the kind of method through which he figures it out and he gets the answer that he needs. So yeah, it's not a strong narrative conflict. I'm not sure it's a narrative conflict because I don't think we have goals that are mutually exclusive, but it is a narrative. There is stuff happening here. There is something interesting. It is, it is a transitory kind of liminal space where we are handing off from one story to the other, from this story to the next. Um, and one of the things, too, that um, I, I read the afterword um, in the omnibus uh, version that we have where Neil was talking about the experience. And one of the things that he said is that uh, the sound of her wings was really where he he found his voice, you know, where he felt like he, he had Sandman down. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about that is that for the writers out there, um, this is Neil fucking Gaiman, right? Who went and wrote seven issues and it wasn't until the eighth one after a year of work that he felt like he was beginning to get the voice. So um, everything is an exploration. You know, everything is a matter of finding your feet. Even the greats like Neil have to walk through that process. And the only way to find your voice is through the work. There is no way out but through. You are never going to start with word one and be absolutely where you want to be. Um, and so we all of us as writers need to um, need to write our way to, you know, to where we end up. The nice thing about those of us who are novelists is that we can start writing that and nobody ever sees it because by the time we get to the end and we finally figured out our voice, we can go back and rewrite that. But when you're over the course of a year writing a number of issues that need to then be, you know, illustrated and edited and then released and then, you know, all of this kind of stuff, when you are laying track as the train is moving, that is almost impossible to do. So I just want everybody out there who is like, oh my God, Neil Gaiman, like, yes, oh my God, Neil Gaiman, he's amazing. He's an incredible talent and he has to work through the work to find his voice as well so just you know i just want all the writers out there to like understand that even neil gaiman has to do that since we're talking about image that yeah. it might be a good segue to get us into mm -hmm. i need like the music yes 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 lucien's <laughs> library lucien's library we do need a theme for lucien's library to transfer us into this um yeah well, well I'll, I'll see if i can pull up some music or something for that uh, at some point there we go <laughs> All right. So what do we have in Lucien's library that we want to talk about? Well, first of all, I wanted to talk about Death's design, her visual design. Mm -hmm. So this is the Death from the comics. And we had touched mm -hmm. in an earlier episode about how there was um, some people reacting to the casting of I'm having like that 
speaking of farts, brain fart of mm-hmm. Kirby mm-hmm. Baptiste. Wait, Kirby, Kirby? Kirby Howell Baptiste. Kirby Howell Baptiste. I, I mm-hmm. need to say this every night so I can rem- I can't remember <laughs> people. People with three names. You can't expect me. I'm I'm old and I can't remember new oh, things. Oh, what, like Lonnie Diane Rich? Are you saying that you don't know I learned you when I was still in my <laughs> 30s or 40s. It was fine. Um Anyway, so there were people Mm -hmm. who reacted, you know, to um, her casting and said, wait, she neither looks like the character in the comics nor like my collectible action figure. And and I know that that this was an issue, but so I'm just going to talk for a minute about this uh, death who is very bone white. And um, yes. Mm-hmm. So she was based on a friend of Mike Dringenberg's named Cinnamon mm-hmm. Hadley. And she was uh, born in 1969, I believe. Mm-hmm. So she would have been in her teens probably or just turn- turning 20 when um, mm-hmm. when Dringenberg was drawing her. And um, she, she died, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. of cancer-related causes. I believe it was... 2018. But her Mm -hmm. face, her figure, her aesthetic are uh, reflected in Dringenberg's art. And and Mike called her his muse for this. And I I think it's an interesting thing to sort of, as we're talking about where we find inspiration, how the Mm -hmm. artists came up. You know, so Neil came up with the idea. And I, I, don't remember. I have to look back and see what the original description was. Mm-hmm. But this particular iteration was also um, a, a collaboration with Mike Dringenberg and also with this young woman who created this look. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look up her her name, you can see some images of what she looked like mm-hmm. and how she dressed. And uh, so that's I just sort of wanted to um, credit the muse as well. Yeah. And and I thought it was also maybe I mean I don't want to I want to give you definitely a chance to weigh in but I thought we should talk a little about costume and and mm-hmm. wardrobe in yeah. in Sandman. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I talked about with Joshua is one of the reasons why Sandman is not a superhero is because he does not have a costume. Yes. You know, I mean, he has that big coat, you know. And I would argue the the mask, you know, the helmet, maybe something some somewhat costumey. But overall, I mean, he's just he's just the dude, right? You know, and he appears differently to everybody. And so there is, you know, kind of this this ephemeral sort of sense to like who he is at any given time in any given space, you know. Um, but it is, yeah, like they do have a look. You know, they clearly have the same hairdresser. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, I so I uh, give a workshop. Um, mm-hmm. which is visual storytelling for prose writers. And mm-hmm. and one of the exercises that I do is I say, think of yourself as the art director. Think of yourself as the wardrobe person. So even if you don't mm-hmm. have a costume, you'll probably have, you'll, you'll gather a wardrobe with a very particular look for a character. Mm-hmm. And in movies and, and TV, characters often dress more consistently. I mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we might have, you know, different looks uh, for different occasions. I don't know that mm-hmm. I, I present myself as coherently as, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, 
bohemian hippie chick is my aesthetic but uh <laughs> but there 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 are you know occasionally strange you know julie mccoy white mm-hmm. pants that might crop up but <laughs> it, when you're when you're doing it for story you want a more oh my god it takes somebody our age to get julie mccoy white pants as a reference but yes i'm sorry continue <laughs> that that was a love boat reference friends. i love that yes <laughs> so um anyway i wanted to mentioned that so there there is this distinctive wardrobe and neil also had a distinctive wardrobe look so when i first mm-hmm. met him he was known for always 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 you know he had his shaggy tousled hair which he still has mm-hmm. uh was clean shaven always wore a black leather jacket like a motorcycle mm-hmm. jacket type jacket i yeah. think it was and mm-hmm. uh dark sunglasses so he he was I mean, I, it was a very distinctive kind of a a rock star look. And he also Mm -hmm. had in college, I I found that the cool people wore the same look. And if it was Mm -hmm. freezing, they didn't need an extra jacket. And if it was boiling, they didn't take off their cool jacket. And wow. Mm -hmm. And Neil was like that. He always managed Mm -hmm. to regulate his temperature enough to keep this, this (laughs) good now. And Anyway, now he's he's got these lovely tailored black jackets. It's a uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a I think in a, in a way it's a it's a lovely updating of of the look. He always wore all black. Um mm-hmm. and anyway, so so I I remember thinking that there was a way in which even his presentation of self, he was aware of the visuals. He, yeah. he also, and this is just aside from everything else, I don't know if this was partially to maybe, you know, accommodate this. So when I first met Neil, I was what, maybe uh, 25, 26, and mm-hmm. I think he's four years older than I am. But he had the most baby face ever. He had, you can see the old <laughs> pictures. You know, now he's like the, this wonderfully uh-huh. craggy, you know, it's the face mm-hmm. of a writer. But then yeah. he looked, he looked like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was. Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. That was, that was, yeah. There, there, there was my behind the scenes, Neil. <laughs> Baby face, baby face, Sandman. baby face, Gaiman. I think from now on we may have to call him Baby Face Gaiman. I, I, I really can't accept the responsibility for that. I'm gonna get hate now. Why? Yeah, it's gonna be from Neil. From Neil, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So speaking of faces, um, mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk a little about the cover. So I know you don't have. I have to get you like the. I think is a present. I don't know. I look them up on the internet. Oh, but I have to get you you. the collected dust cover. You know the covers. I would love that. that Yeah, I've been looking them up because they're not in the Kindle version. You know, and um, and so I've been looking them up online because you keep talking about the Dave McKean covers, and I'm like, I am missing a whole experience here. So I started looking them up, and yeah, I was missing a whole experience there. (laughs) It it is. I, I mean, I know we're not supposed to judge books by their covers, but I feel mm-hmm. this is comics are visual. We are talking about the visuals mm-hmm. and very much the cover is part of that. So here we've got Death as our our cover girl, but we mm-hmm. can't really see her face. You know, we just see the glow of her Ankh, that Egyptian symbol mm-hmm. of death and rebirth. And there's this really bright blue sky behind her and that Again, that suggestion of wings, which capture a lot of the themes of this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also this green ivy growing alongside the shells this time, which I think is a nod 
to maybe the earth and growing things. Uh, the Victorians used ivy as a symbol of fidelity. And I think maybe that's mm-hmm. part of the bond between yeah. uh, death and dream. And last, I, I looked this up. I hadn't realized that ivy is associated with uh, Osiris and immortality in ancient Egypt. Ooh, interesting. Wow. Davis just really pulling out all the symbols. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, yeah. And they, they are beautiful. I highly recommend anybody who doesn't have, you know, the the covers to just just do a search on um, on, on Google and find them. Um, they are really, really, truly beautiful. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about, uh, you know, as I was reading the afterword where Neil was talking about his experience writing it, um, he said that Karen Berger approached him for eight issues. Um, and so was that all that was intended like if this didn't fly they were just gonna like shove it in a drawer and pretend it never happened or did you always think I I guess you came on later on in in the process but you know at the time was Neil Gaiman the kind of a name that everybody was like yeah this is gonna go on for a while or was the eight issues just gonna be it and we didn't know if it was gonna get renewed I mean how do comics work His fame at that point was very localized in comics. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, Mm -hmm. if it became later this, you know, enormous saber-toothed whatever, it was it was Mm -hmm. still a domestic cat, but a large domestic cat, maybe, (laughs) maybe like a a Maine Coon fame. Okay, sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um so he he definitely I'm I'm saving up the the story of my first days at DC and how I actually mm-hmm. met Neil because there is mm-hmm. there is a funny story I've, I've sort of how how many issues do we have left now before we segue oh before we go to the TV show yeah. I think it's just the doll's house I think it's just eight more issues all right so I will be mm-hmm. sure to uh, after at at some point during the doll's house I will this is yeah. this is my gypsy Rose Lee of, of story I will um, all right I'll be telling my my <laughs> origin story but um I I think this is this is how I perceive this to have gone and you mm-hmm. know I, I Obviously, if you wrote a a series and it wasn't doing that well, then it would end sooner rather than later. Things were not Mm -hmm. routinely collected into graphic novels. That is something Mm -hmm. that happened later where it found a second life. And in fact, Mm -hmm. Sandman was how I think that became the precedent for... Oh, wow. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I... Look, I may be wrong. I may be wrong about everything. I may I may not even be me. <laughs> I am I am convinced that this sounds like a thing that is right, but that doesn't mean okay. it is. Uh, but I, I believe that, that it was Sandman and the collection of Sandman that, that where it became much more of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. sure now Josh and uh, a million other people are going to say, no, it was, you know, <laughs> Floyd McFerguson's famous, you know, Newt Man, mm-hmm. the series. Right. I'm so sorry, guys. I, I, there's mm-hmm. so much I don't know. But this was really written, I think, in a way to be collected in that they, mm-hmm. this, this, not that other people didn't also do that. Obviously, there are other writers whose work pays lots of dividends upon rereading. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, you know. Yeah. Anyway, all that said, I do think that books may have had a little longer to find their audience. It wasn't, mm-hmm. I, I think Paul Levitz had a lot of faith in Karen Berger as an editor. Vertigo was not 
called Vertigo at this point. It was just mm -hmm. stuff that Karen liked to publish. But yeah. but Paul Levitz and, and Jeanette uh, Kahn, you know, they had a lot of faith in Karen Berger. And she really believed in letting writers and artists find their voice, find their, their legs under them. So she... She didn't have this agenda. You know, she wasn't an editor who had this agenda of this is what I want you guys to be doing. And this is mm -hmm. my vision. And I'm going to I'm I, you know, I'm going to it's I'm the director of all of this. Her great talent was really helping people find their voice and their rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. that's my long winded way of saying I don't think I don't know, maybe it would have only lasted eight issues. Maybe mm -hmm. it would have lasted a little longer. But as I recall reading in an interview after the fact, mm -hmm. I think issue like one and two did well, and then there was a drop off. And here at, at eight is where things began to move upwards again in terms of up. the growth mm -hmm. to pick up. And then it just got, you know, gathered more and more momentum. Okay. Yeah, it's um it's interesting because I don't like I don't know how that works and how long somebody has for things to like kind of pick up and and move forward. So to me it was just kind of interesting that it was it was an eight issue, you know, commitment at the beginning and then how that moved forward and is it like a TV series and all that kind of stuff. So I just don't know the oh. behind the scenes of comics. Oh, mm -hmm. I could I can say something else about this which is yeah. so when I at this time, and, and when I was working at DC Comics, we were in New York City, and we were mm -hmm. really kind of siloed off from the rest of Time Warner and Warner Brothers. So mm -hmm. that change where comics became big, big business hadn't happened yet. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm just trying to think, you know, I remember in terms of our Christmas parties, first they were mm -hmm. like fairly small company Christmas parties. And then when comics had this big boom, suddenly we were at Le Bar Bat and things like that. And mm -hmm. then again, we were th that there was a boom and a bust. And then we were just again mm -hmm. in people's houses. <laughs> but <laughs> there was something freeing about it not being this huge business. I don't think, you know, at this point, it wasn't comics hadn't taken over all of movies and Batman and Superman mm -hmm. and Wonder Woman were, you know, still considered obviously important properties. But this mm -hmm. idea that everything that was being done in comics was going to turn into another kind of entity, that was mm -hmm. decades off. Oh, that's so neat. It's so interesting. Just uh, kind of getting this this background information. Um, the other question I had for you is that, you know, we've, we've talked a bit, there's inkers, there's illustrators, there's letterers, there's coloring. Uh, Dave McKean did the covers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the art works? Um, you know, we've talked like, we've talked about, um, you know, about Mike Dringenberg and Sam Keith and Malcolm Jones III. But Todd Klein, uh, Neil Gaiman was writing in the end, Todd Klein did the lettering, Robbie Bush did the coloring. Um, what is the difference between like an inker and the and the coloring person? Like I I guess I don't understand all the the different stages that the art goes through and all these people working together on it. And I feel like, you know, I've been remiss in not crediting all of the artists on this properly throughout this process cuz I just didn't know any better. Um so can you kind of like fill in a little bit of that information? Sure, I'll I'll mm -hmm. do my best. So I'm going to I'm going to this is like 90s version. We're talking old school. Yeah. So um, nowadays, 
a lot of stuff is done digitally. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go back to how this was actually how this yeah how it was done. Then. This mm-hmm. sausage was made. Yes. So mm-hmm. the reason that a lot of these different components are done by separate people is a time mm-hmm. element. So if you're trying to produce okay. a monthly book, if the same person were penciling, inking coloring, lettering, you know, all the things that indie people will Mm -hmm. be doing, it would just take, you know, much, much longer to produce. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a time element, but it also makes it collaborative in a really Mm -hmm. wonderful way. So uh, nowadays, because things are done digitally, it is a little more possible for someone to do the equivalent of penciling, Mm -hmm. inking, and coloring. I'm going to say, though, that in later in Sandman, one of the first issues that was penciled and we had the technology to just keep the pencils and, mm-hmm. and not do inks, uh, and that was a Michael Zuli illustrated issue. Mm-hmm. Now, some artists really, like Zuli's style was a style that really lent itself where you wanted to see all the, the pencil. Um, mm-hmm. Often, though, things are, are, like the inker's job is really wonderful. I think there's a whole part of, that movie Chasing Amy where the inker is trying to explain, yeah. it's not just going over it and in uh-huh. dark ink. You know, that's that's it's mm-hmm. it's not just um that. So anyway, so and I can also talk a little bit about the role of the editor. So here yeah, here's please. here's how it worked back in the day. Mm-hmm. So Karen would get the script first and she mm-hmm. would read it. And if she had any notes or anything she wanted to talk over with Neil or any writer, then mm-hmm. she would do that. Often she would talk with me when I was the assistant editor and we would mm-hmm. have, you know, a little talk about, you know, the the issue if there was time beforehand. Um, I remember the first time on a different uh, script where I, I said, I had this question, you know, like, oh, wouldn't this have been a cool thing to find out more about? And she said, mm-hmm. "You, that is a good point. Go ahead and, and talk to the writer, which was mm-hmm. an amazing thing. But in general, I'm, am I being too long winded here? Is this no, 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 okay. no, no, no? I'm fascinated by this whole thing. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then uh, the script gets sent to, which was probably faxed. I can barely remember. I think we faxed. <laughs> I was so excited, like, oh, it's so quick with the fax, <laughs> with the faxing. Yes. <laughs> so, I, and you know, by the way, in those days, I did so much xeroxing. I remember that, you know, whether it was xeroxing of, well, I'll go back to it. But I was mm-hmm. always like, will I be harmed by all of this xeroxing? <laughs> um, So anyway, okay, the pencils then go off to, uh, the script goes off to the penciler. And the penciler is the one who is going to lay out the panels and illustrate, you know, Mm -hmm. first, so usually the penciler first does a layout and that's rough, not going into all the details. It's really good that way because then if the editor has a, you know, a comment, like, actually, I think that's a little unclear. Can you fix Mm -hmm. that? Or you, you didn't, you move too far away from the script, uh, then the editor can give some Mm -hmm. feedback before all of the detail goes in. So at this point, uh, I would do, this is old school. So if I'm remembering this right, we would do Xeroxes (laughs) of the Mm -hmm. pencils and I would then balloon the pages. So what I would Mm -hmm. do is I would, um, you know, physically on the Xeroxes draw in Mm -hmm 
the the balloons and I'm doing it with my finger everyone so yes. you can see mm-hmm. the balloons <laughs> with the little tail and and then I, the script you know you'd mark up the script that went with the balloons so you would write mm-hmm. which numbers went with which lines yeah. so mm-hmm. balloon one two three four with lines of dialogue one two three four mm-hmm. and um, and some of sometimes those balloons as you can see are linked um, yeah. So when this was being done, there were there are rules of ballooning. A balloon should not interrupt uh, the sight line between two characters if they're talking to each mm-hmm. other. Uh, ideally, you don't want it to cut off the top, uh, but it's better to cut off the top than the bottom. You never want to cut off mm-hmm. the bottom and people's feet. Uh, so those were some of the rules of ballooning. And then you had to make sure that they would be read in the correct order. Right. So then that was sent off to the letterer. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, you would uh, at some point get the finished pencils. Now, sometimes the pencils would stay somewhat rough and the inker would be a finisher, which means that the inker would really add a lot of the detail in the inks. Other times mm-hmm. the pencils were much, you know, were, were done tight. And then the inker has to decide how to translate what is a piece of artwork in pencil into a piece Mm -hmm. of artwork in inks. And that was done for Mm -hmm. originally for reproduction purposes, but it's a very different look. It's kind of, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm trying to think of what I could compare it to, but you really, it is a a form of translation. And so where you're placing the blacks, how you are um, getting in textures, how you are drawing the eye and balancing the image. I mean, I'm not the best person to discuss all of this. I have (laughs) artist friends who are probably now laughing and like doing shots just to get over me trying to describe this. But tell them to come here and get on the microphone, explain all of this to me because I know nothing. I'd love to talk to them. (laughs) So yes, obviously an artist Mm -hmm. and particularly, you know, someone who's an inker will be able to speak about this in, in, in more accurate detail, but but it mm-hmm. is a form of translation. Then, um, oh, the lettering on the boards would come back before the inking. Then came the inking. And then um, the colorist would have Xeroxes and there would be like a color chart. And mm-hmm. as I'm recalling, so then um, when we got the, the colors back, there, there were color separations. We'd have mm-hmm. to look at the color guide, which was done sort of with paints. And yeah. And uh, and there were codes, and you would have to check the code and the paint guide against what had been done by the people separating the colors. Now, Shelley wow. Shelley Roberg, who was at the time Shelley mm-hmm. Bond, she was the assistant editor who came after me. She was amazing. She could look at a bunch of like those tiny little like dots of color, which yeah. you know I'm nearsighted. Mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah, you know, she would look and she'd say, "Oh, well, that's an R two B two three, and clearly what was called oh for there God. was not, you know whatever." And I was, I still, I do, you know, I I cannot even imagine. But the colorist would try to capture the mood, try to understand how to work in flashbacks. We used to joke, you know. If if something wasn't as clear as we thought it perhaps could have been, color will fix it. Color will fix it, we would say. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. So I, I don't know if that uh, is 
making sense. And part of the role, which I just left out of uh, mm-hmm. the editor and the assistant editor was to figure out the schedule. So you have mm-hmm. a schedule where, you know, there's the, the big thing you don't want is for the book to ship late. And so you have to make sure yeah. that everything's coming through on time and being processed appropriately. You had to make mm-hmm. damn, damn sure in the old days that you did not lose the original art. So, oh my God, that was, I, just, you said that and my heart just went, <gasps> oh God, I got to tell you. So I, we had a file cabinet and one time, uh-huh. one of the pieces of original artwork fell down the back. You know how things can fall down the back of a file cabinet and I could not yeah. find a page. And I just remember that the, uh, I, I thought the world was ending. It was one of the oh, yeah. most right. Cause we, we would send the art back to the artist. That was another one of mm-hmm. my jobs. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, that whole process, you know, it is it is amazing when you think about all of the steps that went into building this. And um, and I meant it. If any of your artist friends want to come on the show, I would spend an entire hour doing nothing but listening to these stories of how the art is made. I think that is amazing. And that you guys had all of those skill sets in story and visual and all of that kind of stuff to pull it together is just so incredibly fun. God, I wish I'd known you back then. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, but okay let's go ahead and start wrapping this up here we are with sound of her wings at the end of preludes and nocturnes um what's your favorite page oh gosh uh the gorgeous page where we see a really beautiful image of death in the third panel and then Mm -hmm. we get the fabulous bip of the bread on the head <laughs> that is. That's a really, really fun one. Um, I loved the page. It's 218 in the Kindle version. Um, when Dream and Death are traveling through the city and he is sort of having all of these thoughts, soundless, we move through, and oh, somebody walked over my grave, you know. Um, the drawings of the buildings and dream and death sort of moving through, you know, all of this man-made splendor of the city, you know. Um just like the whole page as a unit is so incredibly like visually beautiful and detailed and that's the the thing that inspired me to ask you a little bit more about the art because it is so like incredibly and pardon me for using this word illustrative like it just you know (laughs) it brings it breathes life into this whole world things that we're not really thinking about because we're so focused on dream and death and yet there is this whole intricate world around them there is this beautiful architecture there's you know these buildings in this and this place these places that they're traveling through you know um it just felt to me like it gave it such an, an anchoring within a world that we have only begun to explore and i loved that visual presentation on that page i thought that was just beautiful it, it really, by the way, this is reminding me, this is sort of probably off topic, but mm-hmm. um, for anyone who is in or around Stockbridge, Massachusetts, there is a, um, at the Norman Rockwell Museum, there's a special exhibit on fantasy arts. So there's some comic book art. Uh, Charles mm-hmm. Vess, I know, has, uh, who was a Sandman artist. Uh, he was the mm-hmm. artist of Midsummer Night's Dream, which won the World Fantasy Award. And his work mm-hmm. is featured there. There's just wonderful fantasy art. And uh, so it, it, speaking of fantasy art, you know, that that's go a check gr- it out. great place to go. Yeah. <laughs> 
Awesome. <laughs> All right. So in the narrative, what's your favorite part? Oh, gosh. I'm torn between the poignant death of the old Jewish man who was mm-hmm. the the violin player, um, yeah. which reminded me of one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. And, and that heartbreaking moment where the baby says, but is that all there was? Is that all I get? Yeah. Oh, God, that was so heartbreaking. Yeah. And when his mother on the floor, I was like, oh, my God, we spend that moment and it's so quick and it's so fleeting. And then we're moving on to the next thing. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> That was really, really heartbreaking. Um, I I love that death comes back for Franklin. I I love that we uh, we kind of take this bookend. Yeah, you know, we open with Franklin, we close with Franklin. We do have that moment where death says, "Yeah, I'll be back," you know, for you in a little while. <laughs> And you just know that's coming. But then she goes through all these other yeah. people. And I was kind of hoping to think, because, you know, like out of all the people that died, like one of them was old. You know, it's all these young people dying. I was like, ah, you know. Um, and and when she comes back to get Franklin, I'm like, oh, it's so sad, you know. <laughs> um, but it was a nice bookend. It was a nice completion. They were starting somewhere. They were traveling and they came back to where they were. But one of the nice thing about bookends and stories is that you're in the same place, but you're not in the same place. That, you know, that even though they are in the same physical place, um, Dream has had a whole journey and he is now different from who he was when they left it originally. And I just I like that as a as a nice reflection. You know, bookends can be really, really fun in a story. Yeah, I I completely love that. And I, I love the I think that death is also acting as a psychopomp. And I mm-hmm. think a psychopomp is is the, the character who bridges that who, who takes you from life into mm-hmm. into death as well as as being the avatar of death. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a Jewish midrash that says that the angel of death who comes for you at the end of your life is the same angel who took you out of heaven and you know and and Aww. and put you in this world and so that the angel of of death is an angel of birth as well enjoyed this conversation would like to join in connect with the show on twitter follow at chipperish and use the hashtag endless podcast or send your comments or questions to endless at chipperish.com this episode of endless was brought to you by the chipperish media producers who support us on patreon at the power producer level these people are the reason why endless is coming to you free and ad free right now so thank you to abby alice christina erica jonathan kevin Kristen, michael rose sarah shelley stephania and stephanie and this week's special message is for our power producers It is as natural to die as it is to be born. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or live out every comedian's nightmare and die on stage. This episode of Still Pretty was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you have taught me something I had forgotten. I thank you. We will be back next time with Volume 2, The Doll's House, Issue 1, Tales in the Sand. Until then, 
From dreams I conjure a handful of yellow grain. I throw the grain into the air, and I hear it, the sound of her wings. <laughs>